We're going we're gonna to turn our attention back again to Exodus 16 and 17, where, as I mentioned earlier, we see God's gracious provision. And we see it in the giving of the manna. We see it in the quail. We see it in water again, this time water from a rock. God providing for his people as they journey with him. And as we recognize this, uh, we, we see it as gracious provision. Because as I mentioned, from the people's actions, from their words, we, we wouldn't think they deserve this kind of provision. Yet God provides because he's gracious, because he's good, because he has great plans for these people. Uh, and as we stand back and, and reflect on these examples of God's gracious provision, there's three things that I want us to consider and pay particular attention to now, and then one more that will lead us into communion later. The three initial things that I want us to consider um, are, are these. Here in, in Exodus 16 and 17, I think we see uh, the pleading for provision. We then see the promise of provision. And we see all of that because we then can know the person of provision. And so let's consider, firstly, this pleading of provision. We see, we, we see the Israelites pleading. Uh, and they plead for, for food and for water. We see it both in the start of 16 and the start of chapter 17. Of course, we saw it last week at the end of chapter 15 as well. And at the end of chapter 15, we saw that they did experience that gracious provision. God provided them water. He brought them to shelter. Um, but it's not that long before the people start to, to question once again. And so let's recap and read those first three verses of chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they have come out of Egypt. And so here we're, we're, we have a timestamp here, 15th day of the second month. So we're talking about six weeks or so after they left Egypt. Now Egypt, rem- remember Egypt. The people are very often remembering Egypt, but we know Egypt as that place of slavery, of hardship, of oppression. But as we've seen, that's not necessarily the memory the people have of it here. So they come out, uh, f- uh, we're in the 15th day of the second month. In the desert, in verse 2, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The, the whole community, this is, this is essentially a mutiny. It's, it's a potentially huge unrest. Remember, this is not a small gathering of people. Uh, back in chapter 12, we were told that 600,000 men left on foot out of Egypt. That didn't count women and children and the extras who joined them. So this is a huge community of people, and they're now grumbling against Moses and Aaron. That, that's a daunting place for Moses and Aaron to be standing in, but they're there. And then in verse 3, the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. That's a remarkable thing to say, isn't it? If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. They, they had been in captivity in Egypt. They had cried out for God to save them from the captivity in Egypt. And yet now they say, if only God had killed us then. They, they, they had wanted, they had pleaded for God to free, flee, free them. And now that he had, they wanted to go back. But, but in truth, they're being guided by their stomachs here, aren't they? They, 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 the words that they use for their grumbling here tell us something. Second half of verse 3. There we sat around pots of meat and had all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And so the people are being led by their stomachs. They, they, they're, they're very clearly caught up in that idea that the grass is always greener. So when they were in captivity, they wanted to be free. Now that they're free, they want to be back because it seemed better then. They don't seem to remember the mistreatment, the horrible conditions, the subjection that they were under. They just remember that they had good food. And they're hungry now, so let's go back to where there was good food. 
And so they grumble. And they grumble about food in chapter 16. If we flick to chapter 17, we see that it's moved on to water. First three verses again from chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now that's an interesting tone that has changed. Back, back in chapter 15, in verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now that has become Moses, give us it. There's a, there's a different tone here. It's, it's more aggressive in its sense. There's an assumption here that Moses, you're part of the problem, so sort it out. You fixed it before, so make it happen again. And Moses, uh, he's bound to be running out of patience, but Moses, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord, your God, to the test? You see, Moses understood. He knew that, that the people's question weren't really an attack on his leadership, but they were actually an affront to the God who was truly leading them. And so it's the same as chapter 15. It's the same as chapter 16. The people turn on Moses, but Moses turns to God. Again in verse 3, the people, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt and make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? You see, again, they've got Egypt very firmly in the mirror here. They're longing for the supposed good old days. And as, as readers of this account, I think it is so easy for us to be baffled at just how quickly they've forgotten God's gracious provision, how quickly they've, they've turned. I mean, so often already God has shown his gracious ways, and yet they're already beginning to get so distracted, questioning, and, and by these carnal desires, these food and thirst. Um, but again, as we mentioned last week, let, let's not be too quick to take the high road. Certainly I know I can't. Uh, how many times I've found myself asking questions along the same lines as the Israelites here. How many times I've, I've witnessed firsthand the merciful and gracious provision of God, only to wish then that things were different. Even longing for the comfort of the way things used to be, even though the way things used to be was slavery. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that, that we know exactly the same experiences as what the Israelites are going through, nor am I wanting to jump straight from Exodus to our lives without doing justice to their experience. But, but this is a significant wake-up call for us, for, for those of us who follow Jesus. Because the Israelite example here, it's forcing us to ask a really searching question. How often do we feel to trust in where God is taking us to because we long to turn back to where he's bringing us from. How often do we fail to trust where God has taken us to, because we long to be back to where he's bringing us from? And some of us recognize the challenge in that question, because we know the things we used to experience. We know the things that many of us have even prayed for deliverance from. We know those things that, that had caught us, that has entangled us, and so we wanted to throw them off. But even having experienced the gracious provision of God and freeing us from those things, we, we somehow long for the comfort of them. Maybe it was the control that we had over that situation or the, 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 that, that negative behavior, but at least we could understand it. At least we knew what it was about. There's something about trusting in God taking us to the unknown of what he wants. And the unknown aspect of that makes us think, but hang on, the comfort of what I know, even though it might be bad for me, even though it might be sinful, the comfort of it is drawing me back. 
rather than trusting where God is wanting to lead me to, which is freedom. And, and so maybe we often conclude, as I think the Israelites are showing here, that that, that free is better the devil we know. And in many cases that takes on a very close meaning. Um, but that throwaway phrase, I think, is actually being, uh, it's being illuminated here. The Israelites are basically saying, God, we would rather not have your way because we want slavery again. Another irony with this situation is that we often know that we're lacking something. When we pray this kind of pleading prayer, when we're asking for God's provision in some way, we know we're lacking something. We know we're struggling with where we are. We know we want or we think we want circumstances to change. And so we find ourselves longing for something to happen, for God to intervene. And that longing can, can lead us to pleading for that provision. But actually sometimes what we've neglected to realize is that God has already promised that provision is coming. And that seems to be the case for the Israelites here. We, we see them pleading for provision. They're hungry and they plead for food. They're thirsty and they plead for water. And they do so with their eyes turned backwards to where God was trying to bring them from rather than forwards to where he's leading them to, the land flowing of milk and honey. And, and so we might think that they don't deserve what they're asking for. But thankfully, we're not setting the standard here. See, as, as we move on to see, God provides for his people and he does so graciously. And we should be grateful that he does because as much as we see ourselves reflected in the pattern of negative behavior of the Israelites, we can still see the pattern of God's behavior, that he treats his people with grace. He shows favor even when they don't deserve it. And so we see the, the, the pleading for provision. Secondly, then, we have the promise of provision. And so now we'll see God respond to the pleas of his people. And as I said, we, we might expect things to go differently. We might expect an eye roll from God, if, if not at least a rebuke or a, a challenge or a correction. But, but no, rather we see God giving the promise that provision will come. And then he miraculously provides it, of course. In chapter 16, we've had those first three verses of the people complaining. And then in verse 4, it just starts with, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now, now beforehand, we, we've seen Moses mediating for the people a little bit, Moses pleading for the people. We don't get that impression here. God has heard their cry, even though it wasn't even to him. It was to Moses. And he instigates the provision. He says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Tell them. Uh, the people are going to go out each day and gather enough for that day. See, the Lord intervenes directly. He, he gives his promise. And there's a definiteness here to his statement. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And we see that again later on in verse uh, 11 and 12. Uh, certainly verse 12. At twilight, this is God speaking, at twilight you will eat meat. In the morning you will be filled with bread. See, in, in response to the pleading of his people, God assures them of his definite promise of provision. There is no doubt. You, he will provide. They will receive. And, and I realize I'm maybe jumping ahead a little quickly, but it's easy and it's clear to see that this pattern of God the whole way through Scripture right to our very lives today. That, that as we talked about last week, God graciously provides for our greatest need. That greatest need is, of course, Jesus. The atoning sacrifice for our sin that then welcomes us into God's family by his grace. So we're considered righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And how he has died in our place, taking the penalty of our sin upon himself. That's our greatest need. And even when we didn't deserve it, God graciously provided. 
And, and so we can be sure. We can be sure that God has provided that for us. Because the same God who promised he would provide for the Israelites here is the same God who promises he will provide Jesus and forgiveness and life eternal for us. Just have a look at some of these promises of provision that God makes for those, in the, those of us who follow and put our trust in him. So in the New Testament, we see some of these examples. First John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when we recognize what Jesus has done for us, when we confess, lay our whole selves before God and say, without you, I am nothing. He will forgive our sins. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. And then he sets us on a course. He gives us his presence. In Matthew 28, he promises, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that presence then provides power. We see this in Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This was Jesus speaking to his early disciples. And we know that that was then the pattern for the early church and for all who follow on, including ourselves. And then, of course, not only are we, are we empowered to live for him in this life, but we have the promise of all eternity. In John 14, Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. And so we have the promise that he will forgive our sins. We have the promise that he will be with us. We have the promise he will send his power. We have the promise that he will come back and we will be with him. This is the same God who promises this wonderful provision for us as, as who performed these miraculous signs in the wilderness, providing manna and quail and water from the rock. And so it's clear that, that for those of us who follow Jesus, as we seek to live our lives for him, we, we know the unshakable promise of God that he has forgiven us. He has equipped us for what he's called us to. He will come again in glory and splendor and we will be with him for all eternity. These promises are good and true and secure. So let's live in the light of them. So we have the example from the Israelites here which shows us that we often plead for provision and maybe we do so because we're not looking in the right way. We're still looking back to where God is trying to bring us from rather than where he's leading us to. Regardless of our attitude and our feelings and that we worship and serve a God who promises to provide for what we really and deeply need. And of course, we see that most fully and finally met in Jesus. Now I realize in, in reading these uh, chapter and a half from Exodus, we haven't even scratched the surface of the wondrous, this miraculous provision of the manna and the quail. Uh, and, and the water from the rock. Each of these miracles, incredible in their own right. And perhaps we'll come back to have a look at those at another time. But, but for now, the final thing I want us to consider is the reason why God provides. What, what was the purpose of all of this? And you see, a number of times, God makes it clear. I wonder, did you notice as we read it through? God makes it clear for the Israelite people what his purpose of his provision is. In fact, initially, I had used the title, The Purpose of Provision, for this section. It was just a, a plethora of peas. But whether we think of it as purpose or person, in, in one sense, of the same thing. Because the reason for this provision, the purpose of this provision, is so that the people would know the person who's providing. So let's stick with the person of provision. And this is what I mean. God makes it clear that the reason he is going to provide for the Israelites in these circumstances, in these this gracious and bountiful ways, are so that they know him so that they know that it is him who provides. And ultimately, his provision means that they can know him, they can trust him more, 
they can devote their lives to following him more faithfully. And so look at me with a couple of examples that we see in, in chapter 16. In verse 6, Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. Again in verse 8 we see Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat. And then in verse 12 we see, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread, and you will know that I am the Lord your God. In verse 15, even Moses said, Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. See, time and time again, they're being encouraged to know that this is not just gifts you're being given. The purpose is that you see the giver of the gifts. So time and time again, the gracious provision of God was given so that the people would know that it was God who was leading them. It was God who was providing. It was God who was protecting. It was God who was graciously holding them. And, and why is that important? Well, it's important because of who God is. See, as, as we just mentioned, his provision means for the, the, his, he provides so that they would know him, so that they would trust him, so that they would follow him. But those are only positive things if God is worthy of knowing and trusting and following, which of course we know that he is. He's showing himself to be so. Yes, yes he's showing himself to be the one who can provide, and that demonstrates great power. The physical provision that he's meeting here with the manna and the quail and the water, that's a wonderful gift. What power that demonstrates of his. But we also see in, in these passages so much more on top of that. We see that he's caring and patient and merciful. And so four times in chapter 16, in verses 7, 8, 9, and 12, we're told that God has heard the grumbling of his people. Four times we're told that that phrase is repeated to help us see that God is close to his people. He is personal. He hears their cries. He hears their concerns. And so he is powerful, he's personal, but yet we also see his majesty and his holiness on display. And did you spot that in verse 10? Um, when, when Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. I mean, this is the God who is to be worshipped and revered and adored. And so yes, without any shadow of a doubt, God is worthy. To be known, he's worthy to be trusted, he's worthy to be followed. And he's demonstrating that in bucketfuls for the Israelite people here. And therefore, as we engage with these encounters again, we're, we're drawn to realize the same thing. God is a God who provides. But he provides not just so that we celebrate his provision, but we provide. he provides so that we know him as the person behind that provision. The person who draws us in with his power, with his personalness. Uh, with his, his wonderful provision of love and grace and mercy, yet he is the one who is to be adored and worshipped, revered as the holy, righteous, just God. So, so, so he provides, but he's not just like a vending machine. The, the point is not what we get from him. That's not the end goal of God's provision. He provides in order that we may know him more, that we may trust him more fully, we may devote our lives to following him more faithfully. So there's much that we could learn from these chapters. There's much in which we see the, the people of Israel pleading for provision. We see then God promising to provide and delivering on that promise. And he does so, so that we would recognize him as the ultimate person of provision. The one who ultimately and solely provides for our, our deepest and greatest need. Our God is a good God. Our God is a gracious God. 
And so this is the God who we're seeing as he interacts with his people, his people Israel as they journey through. And I pray as we continue on in this series that we would get to know him more, we would get to trust him more deeply, we would follow him more faithfully. Let me pray and then we're going to sing together. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh God, we thank you for uh, its goodness to us. We thank you, Father, for how you speak to us through it. And God, we praise you, Father, for how you use your word by your spirit uh, to, to draw us further in our relationship with you, to rebuke us when there's things that we need to sort out, when there's sin that is so easily entangled that we need to throw off again. And so, Father, as we've seen from the example of the Israelites here, who seemed to be so captivated by where you were trying to bring them from that they missed and didn't see where you were trying to take them to, God, I pray that you would protect us from that. God, I pray for those of us who find ourselves in those moments of things where that we thought we'd got rid of, that we, we thought we wanted out of, but yet the allure of them is drawing us back, or maybe the comfort of knowing that, that knowing what that was and having control over that part of our lives. It's drawing us back, yet you want to call us to freedom, and you want to call us to trust. And we recognize, Father, that that means stepping in faith. But God, I thank you that this account from your word also shows us that we can without fear put our faith in you you are the God who promises to provide you are the God who has shown himself to be trustworthy shown himself to be personal shown himself to be powerful shown yourself to be so far beyond anything we could even conceive of and so we can trust you with our next step because it's your next step and so we pray Father that you would help us to be people who know you, people who trust you, people who follow you. And Father, I, I recognize that uh, even in dealing with this, there are many of us who are, who are pleading with you to provide us for something. And, and we're, we're struggling with the weight. Uh, and we're struggling to, to, to comprehend why we're not seeing your hand of provision. God, would you give us faith in those times? Would you help us to know the great comfort and the great balm of, of your sovereign timing, of your sovereign purposes. God, help us not to ignore those questions or fears or doubts, but help, help us to bring them to you, the great King of all kings. And God, we pray that as we live out this life of faith, seeking to faithfully follow you, walking in step with your ways, God, would you draw those around us who don't know you yet, would you draw them to you? May, your, may the experience that we've had of your grace and your mercy pour over us onto the people around us so that they would be drawn to the, the wonderful fountain of life and grace, which is you. We praise your name, Father. And we thank you that it is only in you that we can pray these things, only in you that we can sit here and listen to your word, only in you that we can be part of your family. And so we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going we're gonna to sing together, uh, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And then I'll lead us into uh, a time of communion. Apologies for the time. I realize we're um, going over our hour slightly.
Uh, if you do have to, to nip out, please remember just to leave through this door. Um, but if you're able to stay with us and share communion together, please do that too. Uh, so let's sing and then we will share around.